Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to a new episode of I Mean, Can We Discuss? And I am your host, Astra Ferguson. And this is episode 35, guys. Can y'all believe it? Woo, we're getting up there. Uh, but before I tell you about the new guest that I have today, I want to tell you about an upcoming event that I have. I will be in Baltimore. Woo, woo. Yep, November 2nd on Saturday. Come check me out. Look up um, Light the City, the book festival that's going on in Baltimore. Come check me out. I will have new merch. I have bags. I will have my books with me. I actually pushed out a whole new line of merch too on my website. So make sure you check that out under www.astrofergusson.com. The website got a whole facelift. So go check it out. Stay a while. You know, enjoy yourself. See if you find something you like. And today, who I have on the guest chair is Lorraine Avila, who is an Afro-Quisqueyana born and raised in the Bronx, BX, where you're at, a literacy educator, a lifelong storyteller, lover of sweets, mangoes, and platanos. Yup, yup. Just like me, we could be best friends, a seeker of truth, pleasure, and joy. Avila's mission is to break free from generational trauma by continuing to rupture the traditions of silence. She's a daughter, a sister, a prima, prima, I said that, my white, a prima teacher and friend. Avila has a bachelor's from Fordham University in English in Middle East Studies with a minor in creative writing and an MA in teaching from New York University. For the past six years, she has been a New York certified educator. She has taught early childhood education in elementary and secondary school. In 2019, she became one of the Wing Scholarship Program's recipients. Her, writer, her writing has been published in Asterix Journal, Hippocampus Magazine, Moco Magazine, The Girl Mob, La Galeria Magazine, and Blavity. So make sure you guys check her out. And I'm not going to continue to talk for her. So let's get right into the interview, guys. You're listening to, I mean, can we discuss... And I am your host, Astrid Ferguson. We will be discussing different issues that can be debated, articulated, chopped up any kind of way. There's no real set way to this. It could be culturally, it could be socially, it could just be how we're feeling today. So you're here for the randomness and I hope you're here to stay. So remember to subscribe, share, and tell me what you think. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of, I mean, can we discuss? <laughs> and today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Lorraine Avila. Hi. Hi. How are you? It's it's good to finally talk to you. Yeah, I'm doing well, just going with the motions right now, but overall, well. Just going with the bullshit, girl. You're like kicking ass right now. <laughs> <laughs> you think? Well, I, I'm glad that's how it looks. <laughs> yeah. So, why don't you tell us about yourself and where everyone can find you? Yeah. So, I'm in Avila and I am an author now. <laughs> I'm the author of Malcriada and Other Stories. Prior to writing this book, I've been a teacher for about seven years, and I'm just really just transitioning into a life, hopefully, where I can write full time. Um, everyone can find me on Instagram, mostly, um, at Lorraine Avila underscore. Um, and yeah, my website, which is LorraineAvila.com. Why don't you tell me more about your journey of finding your passion for writing? Because 
you've been teaching for quite some time and I'm pretty sure that you probably love teaching as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so uh, <laughs> I love teaching kids. I love working for kids and with students in a way where it feels like it's just them and I, but that's just not the reality of being a teacher, especially in our social climate right now. Um, and I would say that that basically having to overexert myself in order to serve my students and in order to um, be a participant of the schools I, I found myself in really left me feeling burnt out. And I think my story is not unique. A lot of teachers are burnt out. In fact, um, the the average time a person spends in the classroom as a teacher is five years. And that's really, that's a really small number compared to other careers out there. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about why I exited the classroom, even though I really loved it. Um, I've been a writer my whole life and kind of as things were falling apart in the classroom, I'm just like, I'm like, what else do I really love to do? And, you know, obviously it was writing stories, particularly fiction. Um, And for a while, I was just like, girl, can you really do that? Um, Right. And doing all the self-doubt and playing those mind games with myself. And then I spoke to Dominican writers and they told me like they were basically working to become oppressed and I thought it was just like the perfect opportunity for me um and for us really so I just like took all these stories that I've written over years um some I wrote in the last year or so or the last two years and and I put them together into this book and I'm I'm super excited about it it's not like I just write I feel like a lot of it for me feels like oh I just fell into writing but that's not true I mean I've also blogged in the past and um, right, submitted my work and all of that, but I think I never thought about it as like a full-time thing until very recently. Yeah, and I mean, transitioning into a writer, like the business of being a writer, it's a lot and it can be very complex. And then you have to think about the financial aspect of it as well. But for you, um, I think having Dominican writers being your support system mm-hmm. is definitely helpful because they have done quite a bit for you that I haven't seen a lot of publishers do for their own authors. Right. That's real. Yep. Well, I, I, I mean, yeah, I was like, girl, I love y'all. I should have submitted my stuff to y'all instead of <laughs> trying to do this. <laughs> yeah, no, especially like with giveaways and like reaching out. Um, they really did a lot in terms of that because I've never seen that really happen on, on like this, on this like community type of scale as they did. Um, so I would, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah, because they they reached out to me for me to to do the blog post. Um, they reached out to you know for me to 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 interview you and everything. I was like, oh my god, you know, publishers don't do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's real. <laughs> but see, that's why it's good to have your own people, right? Who yeah. it because they mm-hmm. they support you like nobody else. And I think people forget what real support looks like. Right. But anyway, giving the props out, shout out to Dominican writers. If mm-hmm. y'all not following them, Angie, we love you, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um you were originally born in the Bronx, New York, right? Yep. I actually used to live there. Oh. So <laughs> yeah, I, I was I were Morris's. Okay. Morris Ave. Morris Ave. Morris and Jerome, that area, uh, went to MS-143. I think they still there. Oh, wow. And, you know, where Lehman College is and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So I used to, because I, I actually grew up in New York. And then 
we moved to PA um, for high school. And I was like, oh my God, no. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a transition. So with you being born in New York, when was the first time that you went back to like Dominican Republic? Was it like a culture shock for you? Um, no, I, I've been going to DR since I was like months, you know? So, um, I don't ever remember it being a culture shock. It always felt very natural. It felt, I mean, honestly, growing up, I thought the world revolved around the Bronx and DR. Like (laughs) I, I could not comprehend the world being bigger than that. Um, even if I was in school learning about other places, like all of that good stuff was happening at school. Well, not entirely that good, but it was happening at school. But I couldn't really process as a child that the world was bigger than that because that's all I knew. Um, so, yeah, Santo Dominican Republic or Santo Domingo was just like this like magical place where I just went where there were beaches and there were my friends and I could stay out late, even though I was eight, I could stay like in front of the house late, um, where I could just like eat everything I wanted basically because like my grandmother, those were the months we were with my grandmother. So she was like spoiling us and like, you know, just like running, um, just like running the streets and like having open space to do childlike things um Mm -hmm. and that was just a space for that and then the Bronx always felt like home and like also like a place that had its own magic but was was a different type of magic it felt like life here was always like harder like yeah like here like even though I we could um you know have basils in DR to go buy chips and candy and all that stuff we liked that was something that did not happen in New York in the Bronx you know there just wasn't Mm -hmm. money for that um so yeah it was like these two odd like these two separate not odd separate like parts of my experience growing up like I had both of them like I would spend three months in DR every summer like my mom would if she had to take us out of school early and like bring us back late she would um, so yeah. And what, um, what part of, uh, Dominican Republic are your parents from? Or you would regularly visit? Yeah, Bonao. Oh. Yeah, Bonao City. <laughs> oh, so you're a Sibaeña like me. Yes, I am. Where are you from? Oh, okay. I'm from La Vega. That's oh, where I was my, born. Actually, my biological dad is from La Vega. Okay, yeah, I'm from La Vega, but um, my grandmom and the rest of them, they live in Bonao. Oh, wow. Yo, yeah. you know what's crazy? I keep meeting people from Bonao. <laughs> this never used to happen to me before. Like, my best friend is from Bonao, but, like, we didn't know that about each other till like, maybe, like, a year and a half ago. And then one of my really close friends, Nia, um is also from Bonao. We were like, what the hell? And yeah, someone else, um, MP Frias, who I was in conversation with the other day, mm-hmm. is also from Bonao. Like, it's crazy. And now you're from Bonao. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, uh, they don't have like 12 kids for no reason, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, and I know exactly what you mean, how different it is, because uh, I don't know if, if this was for you. I know what I noticed when I went back to Dominican Republic is the different taste in like the Pepsis and stuff. Like I love the Pepsis and La Frambuesa mm-hmm. of Santo Domingo versus from here. When I would go over there, I'd come back here, I'd be crying. Like, why can't we just take all the cases from Dominican right. Republic? <laughs> Yeah, they have they have mad good. Even the uva is definitely different. Like it tastes the same, but there's just like a little like aftertaste that's different. Mm-hmm. Girl, everything is different from the, <laughs> el, el pollo guisado to everything. Okay? Yeah, everything. You're right. <laughs> but okay, before we start getting on this, we miss our home because uh, <laughs> it easily can become that with Dominicans. Mm -hmm. (laughs) so 
now let's shift into, you know, Malcriada and other stories. Because, by the way, you did a wonderful job in this. I mean, there were a lot of profound stories in here. Um, it's almost like you could have created several novels because it's like you were left hungry, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. So how did Malcriada and other stories come to you? Like, is it, was it more of you observing the people around you? Or is it like how authors say that you just hear voices and then you just let it develop? Huh. Um, I would say a little bit of both. Um, I don't necessarily, I haven't gotten to the point where I have like, some like a voice that uh, that I see but I think maybe I hear that through conversations or through other things um I think for me like what comes always is always like one line like I just get a line that flashes in my head and I'm like oh snap like that's a powerful line like I want to mm -hmm. build a story around it um and then I kind of decide um who the character is that that have a connection to that sentence um I would say that um it came to me in like different pieces um obviously Malcriada was first um well not she wasn't the that wasn't the first thing that came first story that came to me I actually wrote that story maybe like a year and a half or two years ago I would say the oldest story in this collection is probably the ride the ride on the on the Yamaha mm -hmm. um but yeah like they just came to me at different times of my life where I was just going through something or like where I had a conversation with a friend and I just couldn't move away from it or when I faced my own my own darkness sometimes and just wanted to look at it from another perspective like wanted to step out of myself and it being all about like what's going on in my life and wanted to look at it in a character um mm -hmm. yeah I would say that it's just like a, a mix of things it's like one my my own experiences also the experiences of those I observed around me and then yeah just like the sentence like the flashing of the sentence feels like it's a an important part of the process for me okay and I mean that makes sense um because uh, a lot of writers will say that it's like they hear the voices and then they develop the story and then mm -hmm they become obsessed with it and, and I was like well something must be wrong with me because that's not how I develop my stories no that's real <laughs> so, I mean it's different for everyone right 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 so hearing you say that I'm like okay so maybe I'm not like you know an outcast or something yeah. uh, <laughs> definitely not so you have many characters in these stories mm -hmm. and there were some in here that I was like holy shit <laughs> and for, for some I connected in a way that it was very personal and then in some it just kind of shifted my thinking so two of the particular stories that I'm talking about the first one is Bobby. Where you talk about, you know, the girl and and her making a list of everything she admired about her father and, you know, the turmoil that she dealt with. I never really looked at it, like, from the perspective of when it's, like, your dad that's doing the abusing. Mm -hmm. um, because even in my own story... The Serpent's Rattle that I put out. Um, it was my stepfather. Mm. So put, this kind of put me in the mindset of like what I guess I felt my sister could be possibly or, or could have possibly uh, 
witnessed or felt. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So I guess my question to you is when you developed Boppy, was this also like personal to you or was it someone else's uh, story? Yeah. um, I would say, okay, so I I feel like there's a part of me now that um, as I like, I'm going to more events and read and like, meeting folks who have read the book which like I love doing I feel like um like folks like folks feel like this is like my my life you know and and Mm -hmm. it is but also like it's based in fiction Mm -hmm. I say that because I'm gonna be honest about it of the connection to my life um but I just wanted to like get that off my chest um Mm -hmm. That was a personal story, but it was from the perspective of um, my sister. So, like, I changed, I changed the lens of it um, because mm-hmm. I, like, I just sometimes like I couldn't tell that story for myself, especially around my biological dad, who he's been gone since I was eight. Um, but I had a very deep connection with him, um, so even seeing these parts of 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 him as a man who was broken was really hard for me because I idolized him and every time I did I wanted to see things for what they were um like my inner child would would hurt you know like she was really grasping like grasping on to the this idealized idea of him um so I really felt with that story like I had to take myself out of it um my sister actually does not I don't think she would mind me sharing this but like she actually doesn't remember much about my dad so I had to make that up right so it's still a character that I made these things up from um you know the younger sister basically looking at this happening around her having like an older sibling trying to like keep the reality away from her but her still really much being faced by like the domestic violence and just the abuse overall that was happening in their household um all of that feels true to me and my experience growing up um but I really had to like make a lot of it up because I it's not like even though I imagined this um sorry I just imagined this because again like there's no like real um experiences that my sister could tell me where I could like be like oh I'm I'm getting this I'm creating this character from her experiences I think it was just like me trying to look at myself and like at my reality in a way that I could be honest about it and that's you know and that's cool I mean we all have our ways of telling our stories and I'm glad you did because it shifted the perspective of not just looking at the negative but looking at the positive of it as well yeah I mean yeah for sure thank you for that (laughs) you're welcome and I know these things are hard to talk about trust me I, yeah. I, I still have a hard time. And yeah, then, I'm, I mean, I tr- I'm, like, working on it. Sometimes I feel like I just go off on tangents, but it's, like, because I'm really trying to explain it. So a quick word from our sponsor today, the Solopreneur Sidekick. So do you want to build a website, but you don't know where to start? Or you're tired of paying website designers for web pages that, let's face it, just don't convert customers into playing clients. Well, if that is your problem, I have the solution for you, my friend. Yes, click the link below in the show notes and start building your website that wows with the solopreneur sidekick on Squarespace. Yes, on Squarespace. Enter the giveaway by clicking the link in the show notes and start saving stress, money, and all that awful techie stuff. You can start with the solopreneur sidekick and start building not just any website, 
but a website that wows. So the other story was mm-hmm. Justice. Yeah. And that's the one that I wrote a pretty extensive blog post of reviewing the book. Um, I think this was probably one of the longest stories in here. Mm-hmm. And you brought up a lot of points. And that's also in the mixing of the races. Um, mm-hmm. I think as Latinas and especially as Afro-Latinas, we mm-hmm. struggled knowing like where do we stand in this whole culture thing? It's like, you're not white, you're not black, you're mm-hmm. not like, you know. So saying it from the from those perspectives and it almost felt like the way the story was written there was so much that could have been like unpacked especially that whole because it, it was like a it felt like it was it was a competition of whose pain was greater mm-hmm. yeah so for me, I guess my question for me um, is like when you came up with this, is this also something that you have experienced like in yourself and in, in, in dating and in, in being an Afro-Latino or even in your career? Like, do you, have you experienced that as well? Um, Justice was actually a story that I wrote between two relationships. I was Exiting, I was dating this um, this man who I had completely fallen for, and it just ended in shambles. And then I was like trying to move on, dating this other um, dude who worked um, who like worked in New York City, but was from the South. And it was my first time dating someone like who was predominantly. Um, black American from the South and I started having like these really interesting experiences where um, like when I date Caribbean men I don't think my identity as an Afro-Latina even when it's like English-speaking Caribbean men like it's it's just not a thing that is highlighted for me per se but I think with um it was the first time with this man from the South that I realized like, oh shit, like there, there's something happening with my identity and power here. Um, and he basically, he basically like said a lot of things that made me feel like he was fetishized fetishizing me which obviously is something that happens a lot to Afro-Latinas and I think it's one of the reasons why we're it's hard to like like for folks it's like hard to see us as human like because they're so wrapped up in the sexualization and like fetishizing us in a way that that feels like quite ridiculous like the problem is on your end not on on ours you know um but I started seeing that, especially when we would be around Black American women I, or, like, when we would be in Afro-Caribbean spots. Like, I would just, like, notice there was, like, just, there was a power, there was something happening. Um, and, yeah, so that started happening. And then one of the lines in the book, um, in the story... Um, where the main one of the characters, the Desmond, who is um the male protagonist in a way, um introduces her to his cousin, and that first line that he said, like, isn't she, isn't she beautiful? She's not an N word, um, and that line was like said about me countless times by him, and. It was just like, I would talk about this and he'd be like, no, I get, I get it. You're black, but like, like you're not right. Like you're not, um, 
you're not black enough. all this other history behind blackness in, in the United States, which I understood from like a logical point, but it was really hard for me to comprehend from like a, like from a pan-African type of ideology. Like it, it was hard for me to put those things together for myself. Um, so I did not explain myself to him or to his cousin like that. That was absolutely made up. But I feel like I've met so many, I feel like I come across so many Black Latinas who are coming into their Blackness who feel like they have to explain it. And that I feel like that's just part of, of the process, though, like in, into like getting rid of our like self-hate around being Black, like. I feel like it's part of the process and it's a process that I had gone through, just not necessarily with him. Um, so yeah, like that story was, it, it's probably just like the, the one story that was hardest for me to, to write, not to write because it was, it actually made a lot of sense for me to write during that moment, but it was one of the stories that I was most nervous about writing and, putting out there because it, it was it was supposed to highlight their very like oppression Olympics like that was what it was supposed to do um, I don't know and like that, it, it just it just became about being like okay there is an Olympic uh, oppression Olympic struggle going on here um, but I want to really examine like what it looks like and for someone to try to explain their blackness to another um, black person that's not, that does not have the same like um, ethnicity per se. Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I'm talking in circles. Oh no, it's fine. I'm, <laughs> I'm just I'm letting you because sometimes you have to just you know let it out. Like uh, you have it there, and you you know you just you want to make sense out of it. And mm -hmm. maybe you know by me sharing my own experience, it'll help you as well. Like I am Haitian and Dominican. My mm -hmm. father is Haitian, but he he was born in Haiti. But his blood, he has European, he has German, so he was always a light-skinned Haitian. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, my mother's pure Dominicana, you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? And she is very light-skinned. Mm -hmm. And I came out right in the middle. I'm like the Carmel, I have the curly hair, I don't have the nice, you know, soft, silky, long, you know, black hair like a lot of our Dominican women do. Um... And I would find myself constantly in the middle of a debate. I'm not Haitian enough. I'm not Dominican enough. I'm not, you know what I'm saying? And both of the fathers of my children are black. Mm -hmm. So with my, young, my oldest son, he looks albino pretty much. Because there's so much going on in my bloodline, he came out like that. Mm. So I think what a lot of times happens, and I don't think that we realize it as a culture, we get so caught up in colorism. Mm -hmm. And we use that to justify assigning a label. Because at the end of the day, that really is what race is. Mm -hmm. That really is what, you know, calling somebody if you're black or not, or if you're white or not, or whatever. It's a label. And it's a label that we created. Because everybody is born the same. Everybody, you know, we're all a human race. But if you claim that you're just, you know, you just see human race, they still say you're racist. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
they still say that you that it's an offense and it's like no what i'm trying to say is i don't see us as being different our cultures my our ethnicities our cultures might differentiate us as to you know principles and things that we practice but at the end of the day the entire human race has gone through oppression the Hispanic race has gone through oppression. I mean, that's all the Dominican is. I mean, we were, you know, colonizers came in and stole the land and then they brought slaves. And, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, yeah, like, I don't know. I, well, um, yes, I feel like obviously it's part of human nature to go through some level of stress and oppression, but I think that that there have been like you we can quantify the amount of oppression at at this point of like people across the board um I don't yeah like I don't necessarily I don't necessarily see how like how I can become a person that can just be like it's where we've all gone through it um it's fine because i i do think that you know it can be quantified and i think to the point of like not seeing race i think i think that's like kind of being colorblind like we live in a society where where we are everything around us is implicated by race like by who like how we look how we are perceived to the outside um you know like so saying that you know I don't see race which I hear a lot of white people say a lot of times to me well not uh, not anymore but like I've heard white people say that and I'm just like then you don't see me if you don't see that my blackness then you don't see me at all um because when I step into the street when anyone approaches me like that is how I am being perceived and approached um yes we can be in areas where it is safe to be ourselves, which is like why I believe in community so hard um but yeah I don't know well I mean that that is something that will involve I guess a much bigger um conversation because mm-hmm. I think the problem with that is who it's coming from. If a white person says that, it's a problem. But if one of us say that to each other, then it's not taken as offensively. It's more of you're not claiming your culture. Mm. That's yeah, that's true. So with that I'll let them talking about that because we can probably talk about that subject forever. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Because there's so much behind it. I mean, from the oppression that we do to each other to the oppression that we receive from other cultures to, I mean, there's, there's a lot that can be talked about that subject. Mm -hmm. So um, another thing that I wanted to talk about is malcriada in itself. Um, an example was like my sister, for an example, she's very rebellious. She's very opinionated and she was always the outspoken one. And my mom gave her such a hard time and would always call her malcriada as if mm-hmm. she had to be more silenced because I was the good girl. I was silent. But like, do you think that um, that's, a way that our culture is kind of teaching the women in our culture that the the best i guess good woman so to speak you have to be silent like you have to just put up with things and and um this label is what's affecting you know like our hispanic culture especially latina women like they shouldn't speak up especially in in situations of domestic violence and things like that like they just have to endure it 
do you think that with these teachings, like that's attributing to that sort of conditioning? Um, I think that like the term malcriada specifically, um, this says a lot about the way um, this women view themselves in, as Latinas. Um, I, I have never, like, it's hard for me to think about this because um, I think Dominican women and maybe even Caribbean, Caribbean um, Spanish speaking women um, are so, are so blunt and are so outspoken as it is. Um, in a way that I've observed other cultures aren't, um, or yeah, other like other Latino cultures aren't. And when I speak right now, I think I speak for um, Caribbean Spanish speaking women. I think that anytime we are highly opinionated or anytime we have a sense of self and a sense of like, I have a voice and I'm going to use it. Um, I think that it's dangerous, right? It's dangerous, especially in the Dominican Republic concerning like femicides and all of that. Like, you know, we live in a country, I mean, well, I don't live in a country, but um, in the Dominican Republic, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Men are just killing women for not abiding to them. And that's a dangerous that's a dangerous fact, period. And I think that as a way of protection, as a way of like, as a way of like protection in a way that feels like really actually like judgment from our mothers, I think we hear that word so often because it's like, I don't want you to have to deal with the violence that comes if you continue to be this highly opinionated and outspoken person because that's just not allowed um you know um and the only reason i say that is because as i've gone back between the dominican republic and here and like as i've spoken to my own mom who like that was my that was my nickname basically um it's kind of like what she shared with me like it's a way to protect you but actually that term is like it's embedded in self-hate right malcriada means i am right like you're raised badly but at the end of the day who's raising us our parents um yeah and i think like for me i would say that it's just embedded enough to be this lively and this outspoken and this highly opinionated because it is a form of rebellion. Like, you know, we're tired of all of the centuries of having to be shut and having to respect the man of the house and having to go through like these traditions that just raise up the patriarchy and, um, and kind of like make us be opaque and like, you know, yeah. Yeah, and I completely agree with you. But I think the flip side of that, too, is like you said, uh, there's definitely a difference between the Dominican women raised here and the Dominican women raised in Dominican Republic. Um, And then trying to have those conversations with your parents, because, you know, um, Hispanic parents are not very open to conversations. It's like what they say, that's what goes. And if if you uh, question it, um, you know, you're a malcriada. So that's why I asked if you think that this conditioning has to do with that. But anyway, um, why do you think that these stories are important now? Um, I think we're just... Um coming to terms with like accepting the ways in in which we've been in which we've been like held down from like our our full selves um 
and are owning like the work to reclaim ourselves. Um, so that's basically why I feel like these stories belong in the right now. And why do you think that um, it's taken us so long to finally like tell our stories? I mean, <laughs> in terms of books, I mean, the publishing industry, I mean, the bureaucracy that's just involved. Um, it's It's crazy. And it's another way that white supremacy tries to make sure our stories aren't told um but also like particularly my stories i used i had to get to a place where i was comfortable with these stories no longer being mine like the minute i i decided to publish a book the stories were no longer mine to to hold and to um explain or to do any of that so um I would say it's a both, like one, like we just live in a society, like we also live in a world where like our voices are not heard as often. It's just what it is. We don't have the means to, some of us just don't have the means to like quit our job and write stories forever. Like, you know, that's not what happens. Or like, even if we do have that, then we have to go through the whole like process of finding an agent and all of that and all of that takes money and resources and connections and yeah some of us don't have it accessible like that right and you know it is it is very tough so would you say that you felt a lot of doubt or not feeling good enough especially like writing it in in spanglish first of all are you going to write it in Spanish? I don't know. That's something that's come up. I really want to. Um, I don't write in Spanish. Like, I'm not fluent in writing Spanish. I can probably write one essay and use Google if I had to. <laughs> um, but I've asked, I've asked, like, if it can be translated for sure. Okay, because I know my mom, she, the first thing she always asks is, ¿Lo escribiste en español? I'm uh -huh. like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So do you have any future writing projects or upcoming events? Um, yeah, so I have a number of events coming up. I have, well, tomorrow is a private event. It's the Mami Chula Social Club. They are, um, they are hosting a book night with me um after that i have um an event at LaGuardia in new york um it's gonna be a reading but i'm also gonna be spending about three hours with them so we're also gonna have a workshop it's open to the public on november 7th um at 1 p.m so i'm really excited about that um it's the first time i've done a writing workshop since i released a book um, then I have an event in Pennsylvania um, at the Lit Roastery and Bakery. I'm super excited about that one because I've been following this coffee shop and this bakery for years. Um, and they um, have a No Shame November series of events and they um, fit me in. And I was just like, thank you so much. I cannot wait to have an excuse to go over there and like eat through the coffee shop. <laughs> <laughs> um, seriously and then on the 18th I'm going to be at New York University that's also supposed to be a public event uh, on the 21st of November I'm at Lehman College that's also a public event and then at Word Up Bookstores on December 12th and that's also public um, in terms of projects uh, I'm trying to work on a YA novel I'm not trying I'm working on a YA novel right now <laughs> Oh, okay. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Um, but yeah, that's that's basically it. I, you say that like it's small. Like, <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, yeah. I'm just, I'm just packed for the year. Um, I'm just, you know, it's like hard because it, this is new to me. So I just, I think it's also like um, I spoke to an artist friend of mine today and she was just like, I need to take a break from 
social media mainly because I don't want to see people's lives because I don't want to keep comparing myself. And I think because, you know, I do see all the great stuff that's happening around me. Sometimes I'm like, oh, am I doing good enough? But you're right. Oh, I, you I, are. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, it's your first book. So <laughs> you can't compare your beginning to somebody's middle. Right. You're right. For sure. So you, you've had a very good start, especially with having Dominican writers backing you up. I mean, you have done fantastic in comparison to a lot of us who have started and it's like crickets, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, I mean, you. yeah. So, you know, at least be at peace with that. I, I think you're doing well and I think you, you will expand and writing is a journey. So just, you know, enjoy it. Yeah, I appreciate that a ton. Oh, you're welcome. And I wish I could see you when you're here in PA, but you're going to be in Bethlehem and yeah. I'm all the way in Philly. So, <laughs> oh no. I mean, that it's like an hour and a half away, right? Yeah. I mm. I'll be at a um cuz I'm I'm in the process of becoming a life coach. Mm, that's awesome. Thank you. So, I'll be in class. I'm starting my modules and stuff. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to make it over there in time. Um, oh, it's all good. Don't worry about it. But thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I'm sure we'll meet each other in person because I'm, I'm a big fan of Dominican writers. I'm sure you'll probably be at the workshop next year. Oh, yeah. So I'll sure. probably see you there. Yeah. But thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Um, it was good to hear your insight and how you brought the book together, Malcriada and other stories. Everybody should follow Lorraine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> yeah, so tell everyone again about your website and, and your Instagram and everything and where they can find your book. Yeah, so you can purchase my book on my website at LorraineAvila.com. That's L-O-R-R-A-I-N-E-A-V-I-L-A, all one word, dot com. And I am on Instagram at L-O-R-R-A-I-N-E-A-V-I-L-A underscore. And also on Twitter with the same name. <laughs> okay, well, it was nice chatting with you and good luck with everything. Thank you so much, Astrid. And that was a wrap for today. Thank you so much for listening to, I mean, can we discuss? Don't forget to subscribe. Follow us if you want to see what we're up to, what projects we're up to. And enjoy the rest of your day, night, wherever you might be. I was your host. Asher Ferguson, signing off.